Bill Fletcher Jr. has been an activist since he was a teenager. He joined the labor movement as a welder in a shipyard after graduating from college. He is engaged in workplace and community struggles, working for unions and the national AFL-CIO. He's former president of the Trans-Africa Forum. He's a senior scholar with the Institute for Policy Studies and the author of several books, including They're Bankrupting Us and 20 Other Myths About Unions and Solidarity Divided, The Crises in Organized Labor and a New Path Toward Social Justice, which he co-authored with Dr. Fernando Gapacin, former president of the Central Oregon Labor Council. Bill Fletcher, Jr., welcome back to the Radical Songbook. Uh, it's great to be on. Thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, I appreciate it. There's been two union organizing campaigns, Starbucks and Amazon, that have gotten a lot of media attention over the past few months. At Starbucks, it seems like almost every day that we read about another store that voted union, often by decisive margins. I see that uh, Starbucks is now advertising for a lawyer with quote-unquote, strike contingency experience. And then over at Amazon, there's that huge win at Staten Island in Staten Island, New York, warehouse by an independent union and the continuing effort to organize Amazon in Bessemer, Alabama. So what I wanted to ask you, Bill, is essentially how important are these organizing victories um, to working people? I think that they're very, very important, Michael. Um, I think that it's it needs to be connected with uh, what people are calling the great resignation, um, the, uh, the um, desire, the, the actions by workers around the country to not return to their work after the pandemic and to look for uh, a better living standard. And I think that what's important now is that it's moving beyond individual action and moving to collective action. And so we see that. Now, having said that, we have to be very, very careful about our expectations. Because you may remember a few years ago, there were all those teacher wildcats that were taking place around the country. And there were many people that were predicting that, that, was, the, that was evidence of the new, a new insurgency. Um, and it's always hard to predict these things. You never know what's going to fundamentally catch fire. But I think that what we're seeing is increasing levels of organization, and that, to me, is what's so exciting. Yeah, yeah, to me as well. Um, and, and, you know, both Starbucks and Amazon, and, and there's some similarities between them and also some differences. Um, Let's talk first, I guess, about the Amazon campaign in Staten Island. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, an independent union. I mean, that was pretty uh, – I don't think very many people in the labor movement thought that that was going to happen. I think that that's right, and particularly seeing uh, what happened in Bessemer, Alabama, uh, the first go-round uh, with, uh, with the defeat there, and also given the nature of Amazon. Um, as a company, and, and this is where we have to be very cautious because uh, I don't want to take anything at all away from the victory in Staten Island, but we have to understand that going up against Amazon is going up against Godzilla. And, and this, is, this is not one local company. It's not one 
large company. It is Godzilla. And, and so these workers have won a very, very important victory, um, but it was not a slam dunk. The difference in the yes votes versus the no votes was not overwhelming, Michael. So, again, I'm not trying to take anything away from the workers because they did a phenomenal job with precious few resources. But what has to be kept in mind is that in going up against a mega corporation like Amazon, one, these workers are going to need some serious support and strategy to get a contract within the next year. That's one. Second is that taking on Amazon as a whole is unlikely to succeed on the basis of one company at a time uh, or one warehouse at a time. It's going to probably necessitate uh, more significant um, resources, organization. And that's where I think it's incredibly important to engage the Teamsters Union uh, more than anyone else in actively getting involved in, in this effort, putting the resources in, supporting the organization that's already starting to emerge as we see with what happened in Staten Island. All of that would be important in order to win a victory. So, yeah, bargaining, obviously, as we all know, is, is incredibly critical, and, and Amazon will have, like, God knows how many attorneys battling uh, in this whole contract struggle. Have you, have you had opportunity, and without naming names, have you had an opportunity to talk with union organizers, folks that work for unions, about how they see this campaign and, and what maybe they're learning from it and how they feel they can help out? Well, yes and no. So there has been assistance that has been offered to the Amazon Labor Union for a while from different unions, particularly in the New York metropolitan area. And, and that's been very, very important. The people that I'm talking with uh, who are experienced basically agree that taking on the company is a necessi uh, necessitates a higher level of organization and, and are hoping that the Teamsters and perhaps the United Food and Commercial Workers will throw down big time and make that possible. Uh, the, this is somewhat, this is different than the Starbucks campaigns that you're mentioning. Now, the Starbucks campaigns are exciting, but they're challenging in a very different way, Michael. Um, they are reminiscent of efforts that took place in the early 1980s that uh, ACORN, um, which no longer exists, but ACORN, the community organization, started uh, these independent unions that were called United Labor Unions. And they began in a number of cities, uh, such as the Detroit and Philadelphia, organizing uh, fast food industries and setting up, uh, setting up unions. The problem in fast food, as is the case in Starbucks, is turnover. So you can win the election, and then all of a sudden the people that voted for the union are gone. This is something that I encountered in, uh, in child care organizing in the 1980s in Boston, um, although the, the turnover was not the same rate as in uh, fast food. 
But the problem that you have, there's a couple of problems that you have in winning in small places. And those include, one, turnover. And the second is a phenomenon that I've, I've seen, not just in small places, but where after a contested election, many people often quit. And so you can have a situation, and I encountered this, where you had a decisive victory over an employer. And within a matter of months, that decisive victory has been eroded because people have left. So what might have been a 75-25 victory all of a sudden becomes a 55% union versus 45. And that is what the employers count on. Because, because what your listeners have to appreciate if they don't know it already is that according to uh, National Labor Relations Act, there is a one-year certification period after an election during which time the two parties are supposed to bargain in good faith towards a contract. At the end of that certification year, however, the workers of that facility can vote <clears throat> to reject the union. And that's what the employers count on. They want to drag out the process, demoralize the workers, bring in a new workforce, and then at the end of the certification year have what's called a decertification election. Now, this is what's going to be haunting the workers in Starbucks and in the Amazon facility in, uh, in Staten Island. There's going to need to be, and, and any organizer will tell you this, um, there's going to need to be continuous organizing, recruiting workers. So in the case of Staten Island, the ALU is going to need to recruit actively the people that voted against uh, unionization. You can't uh, sit back and, and dismiss the people who voted against it, particularly when you did not have a slam dunk victory. So this is going to be very, very important. Um, and uh, because otherwise, my guess is that Amazon, to tell you the truth, Michael, doesn't need a whole lot of attorneys. All they need is one good union-busting attorney who develops a strategy to drag the process out and to trip up the ALU. And all of a sudden, the year is gone. And the company could inspire, as they often do, a decertification election. And that happened here in Bend at, at our hospital a, a few years back where service employees um, won an election of uh, non-nurses, of, of uh, support staff, by six votes. And uh, the hospital let things ride for a year. And, of course, uh, and there wasn't even a lot that much turnover there at the hospital, but they basically... You know, they let it ride for a year, and then they were very. It was very easy for them to to decertify the union. One thing that was missing in this campaign that I think that I wanted to ask you about too is how crucial. Well, first off, one of the things you're saying is, I mean, they need to educate workers for the long haul that this is just the beginning, right? Voting for the the, right. the election is step one, and now comes the long haul, and you got to convince workers to stick around for the long haul. But what role can the community play in any of these locations 
to show support for the workers. Oh, I'm glad you, I'm glad you raised that because um, I would say that uh, let me just start with Amazon uh, and start now. Uh, the ALU is going to need to build a citywide campaign. Now, the reason I say that is that Amazon, because of the way that they're structured, will probably try to weaken the significance of the Staten Island facility in the overall schema so that should the workers end up going on strike, there'll be minimal effect. That will probably be their thinking. The, the workers in ALU need to be thinking about how to put the pressure on Amazon. And that's going to necessitate a number of things. And one of the most important is to do what the Teamsters did with the United Parcel Service, UPS, in 1997, which is that they educated the members around what the central demands of the contract were going to be. And then they went externally and they started building ties around the country uh, with various community-based organizations and institutions. And, and they basically were able to frame their fight as, in that case, with UPS, a fight for full-time work. Because UPS was basically trying to increase the number of part-timers, and the Teamsters were successfully able to articulate the demands of their bargaining as focused on fighting for full-time work. Well, this resonated among workers all around the country because people were increasingly finding situations where full-time jobs were being uh, uh, divided up into part-time work, part-time work with few or no benefits. And so workers that weren't even working for UPS supported UPS. And UPS was just completely uh, baffled by this because they had expected that they could demonize the Teamsters, and, and narrow them and, and obliterate them. And the opposite happened. The ALU will have to do something very similar in the case of Amazon. They're going to need to talk with um, other uh, unions. They're going to talk, need to talk with community-based groups. Uh, they're going to need to have good messaging in the media to basically say what it is that they're fighting for and why it is in the broader interest of the community to support them. If they, if they try to bargain this in a traditional way, like a 1970 way, they'll get clean. So what do you mean by that, a traditional way? But this is for our listeners who aren't that familiar with uh, the way unions yeah. work. The traditional route, uh, you know, I'm saying kind of pre-1975 was uh, for most, uh, I'd say between, between 1950 and about 1975, the way that most unions approached negotiations and bargaining was to come up with a list of demands, um, go to the bargaining table with management, uh, uh, and, and treated as almost an inside uh, baseball situation. So anybody involved with the company, et cetera, the negotiations would happen there. There would be no outreach to community-based groups. There would be very little in the media until and unless it came to a strike. Now, at a point when 
the workforce was between 25 and 35 percent unionized, that gave unions a certain kind of power uh, where they often felt like they didn't need to reach out more broadly, even though I would say that they were wrong and not reaching out, but they didn't feel like they needed to. Uh, now we don't even have that luxury. And so it's important to be constantly thinking at the level of how do we make our issues relevant to the broader community? And there's a whole movement that started called Bargaining for the Common Good, which is basically taking that up. And they're inspired to a great degree by the work of the Chicago Teachers Union that was quite successful in two contract negotiations of making the kids the issue, you know, making the demands of the community, of the parents, um, the issues that came to the table of uniting their concerns with the concerns of the teachers. A lot of unions in the past wouldn't do that. And, and there are unions even to this day that don't. There's a union that won't get mentioned that I was offering some advice to for a little while, and they were preparing to go into negotiations. And I said, look, you need to educate your members. The members need to really understand the demands, and you need to get out to the broader public. And this is a union that has highly paid, skilled workers. Instead, they bargained in very traditional ways. They didn't even make their demands public until a few weeks before everything fell apart in terms of uh, bargaining. There was no outreach to the community, even though they knew that the employer was going to try to make them look like spoiled, highly paid workers. There's nothing that they did to reach out, and it was a mistake. So one of the things, too, Ed, that, I, that I've seen other unions do, and here in Oregon at, at Powell's Books in Portland, the ILWU has engaged in what they call open bargaining, which is where members don't participate in the bargaining, but they can see what the, what the employer is doing. And it, it, did a, it did a lot in that campaign many years ago to sort of expose the fact that the boss, the employer, wasn't really that much of a good guy because look at who he's hiring to uh, to, right. to run against us. So that so the combination of educating the workforce as well as educating the community, it seems to me like you're saying, is absolutely crucial. Oh yeah, and and there are unions beyond uh, besides the IWW that have done that. One of the places I first saw that was in Boston with a, a local of what was then the Hotel uh, and Restaurant Workers Union, and now is uh, Unite here, um, and they would have um, la a large bargaining team, and they would additionally bring in community people to observe what was going on. And, and so uh, a lot of employers will try very early on during the, the discussions concerning ground rules for negotiations, they will attempt to limit the size of the bargaining team and limit the ability to bring in other people. When I was an inexperienced bargainer, I got trapped that way um, in, in the, uh, by an employer that basically early on when we were uh, doing well, that is we had uh, a greater percentage of the workforce in the union, we took for granted to some extent that the employer was going to bargain 
on good faith. And one of the things that they were able to slip in was to limit who was at the bargaining table. And, uh, and that came back to haunt us. You know, you're not talking about everybody. You're not talking about chaos. You're not talking about everybody talking. But I think having the ability to bring in more of the workers, rotating people in, having the, the ability to bring in distinguished community leaders, all of this can be very, very important in building a real campaign. Yeah, and that sounds like something that would be very important in the Amazon labor union struggle in New York. Starbucks, on the other hand, I mean, and we're still going through all of these elections that are being held, and as, as many as there are, as you know, and I'm sure listeners know, I can't even remember how many Starbucks stores there are in the country, but this is really still a very small percentage. How how is this? How do you think this is going to play out with with the with the union? I mean, they're gonna they're gonna continue to win these these elections, sometimes unanimously, but at some point, th- these things have to move into into some some sort of bargaining. I think that uh, what has to happen ultimately is that you're going to have to have what's called a master agreement. Um, I think that trying to bargain each of these stores one at a time will be onerous. I mean, let's just think about what the employer would probably want to do is say that each of the stores has their own issues. And there may even be workers that take that position that say that a store in Boise will have uh, different issues than a store in Buffalo. And while there's some truth to that, if you don't have a master agreement, you will spend all of your time. I can't think of any union, any national union, that would have the time to bargain every individual Starbucks store. So I think that at some point, there'll need to be what's called a master agreement. And the master agreement, Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with the term, would basically say that you reach a certain critical mass of stores that are represented by a union uh, or even by a couple of unions, and that you you bargain with Starbucks for certain overall terms that will apply to all Starbucks workers no matter where they are. You could then have what are called side agreements, you know, where there could be bargaining in each store for particular things that might be relevant to that store. But that'd be a limited number of things. You could have something like that. But having full bargaining for all of them, it would just, it would completely drain the resources of any organization. Do you get a sense that the uh, uh, Starbucks Workers United or are going to be moving in that direction? Or is it too early to tell? Too early to tell. Just don't know. I really hope that they're thinking at the level of a master agreement. The workers in Starbucks are going to have to be consolidated. There will need to be a strategy around bargaining. Because remember what I said about the certification year. Each of those elections, to the extent that they're conducted by the National Relations Board or by um, a state board, will give you one-year certification period. And so if 
the workers don't move quickly, they could face the same fate as the United Labor Unions faced in the early 1980s. I always like to ask my guests, is there anything I didn't ask? Is there anything that you want to add um, for our listeners? Only thing I want to add beyond my thanks is that what's so important about this, what we're seeing, is the building of organization. That mobilization, fight for 15 efforts in, in uh, fast food that we saw a few years ago was very exciting, but it was primarily a mobilization of workers. It was not the organization of workers. And what we're seeing right now is the organization of workers. Because what we have to keep in mind is without organization, we have nothing. You know, you could have your mobilization. You can have great demonstrations. But if you don't have organization, the other side can come back and simply whip you. Bill Fletcher, Jr., thank you so much for taking some time and talking to us here uh, at the Radical Songbook. Appreciate it very much. It's a much. pleasure.